Welcome to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE program entitled Health Plan Strategies for Quality Improvement in Underserved Populations with Diabetes. This Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Impact Education LLC, and it is designated for a half a contact hour of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Dexcom Incorporated, and we would very much like to thank them for their support. So let's get started. My name is Jeff Dunn. I am the Chief Clinical Officer at Cooperative Benefits Group, and I'm joined today by Dr. Este Green, who is the Vice President of Pharmacy at Zing Health. And we are going to discuss the older patient experience with hypoglycemia, a recommendations to prevent hypoglycemia, and health plan quality improvement opportunities to address the risks of hypoglycemia in older patients with diabetes. Hi, Este. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Thanks for being here. So let's get started. So yeah, so the first question, let me throw a question over to you. The population of elderly patients with diabetes is rapidly growing. And it's estimated that a third of adults age 65 or older have diabetes. So what is it about underserved populations of patients with diabetes that concerns you? Yes, it is one of those growing concerns in that Medicare population of more than a third, but actually what we found at Zing Health is actually a little bit more than half of our population actually has a diagnosis of diabetes. So that raises our concerns even more around some of the complications members are having from hypoglycemia and, and other attributes of having diabetes, but also it's some of the medications that we find that these members are on. Whenever we started looking a little deeper into our data, we found about a little over 30% of our patient population was actually on sulfonylureas, which also have a higher propensity of hypoglycemia. So in the elderly population, how do we reconcile that issue of affordability with, say, generic drugs like sulfonylureas with the safety and, and risk profiles in, in the elderly population? Yes, I think that's kind of a double arm there from kind of hitting the underserved population where I think generic medications are used a little bit more frequently because there's this lack of affordability concerns that maybe a provider has. So they're drawn to just using standard metformin and sulfonylureas to try to manage that condition. And then also there's other concerns around will members be able to adopt newer technology. So there's this over-reliance on standard blood glucose monitoring and using diabetic test strips because, again, that's an affordability option. But at the same time, if a patient or a member doesn't identify those hypoglycemic events, it's hard to judge that by just using those test strips. You're not getting that real-time feedback that they're having it especially whenever you add on other medications that I know still dispensing, like you get those DUR overrides all the time at the pharmacy counter of beta blockers and other types of things masking the risk of hypoglycemia that we see a lot of these same patients on. So that's one of the big gaps we actually see from patients adequately managing their hypoglycemic events. You know, benefit designs in Medicare especially are set up to encourage generic utilization, which they are. And I think that we have the responsibility to make sure that these patients are safely using medications and achieving outcomes. Yes, but at the same time, some of those current guidelines, whenever we're talking around sulfonylurea use, there's a lot of information out there around using continuous glucose monitors whenever patients are already on insulin or multiple times a day of insulin, especially with CMS coverage, where it does require the standard CMS coverage requires three times a day administration of insulin or also inhaled insulin as well. And then also making sure that someone's using it multiple times a day where they're testing to get coverage for that. 
where there seems to be that gap where, like I mentioned, where you see a large proportion of the population still using sulfonylureas where they could have that. They're not covered with those type of guidelines that are out there, where if a member actually had those continuous glucose monitors, when they would be able to get that, they might actually be able to track or to better manage their hypoglycemic events, especially if we're talking about something that occurs later in the evening or definitely at night while the patient might be asleep. Are there extra sensitivities around hypoglycemia in the elderly population? Of course there are, yeah. So it does tend to lead to a little bit more of those ER admissions and then leading into that longer term admission where that patient does show up. Also, sometimes when you look at some of the data that's out there, some of these members show up and they actually think that they're actually having maybe a cardiac event or other type of event that's going on that leads to some other unnecessary tests. They're actually all driven off of those hypoglycemic events that lead to extra costs, but then also longer times in the hospital for a member that doesn't possibly need to be there if they're adequately managing those hypoglycemic events at home. Perfect. And can you address the misnomer, for lack of a better description, or, or assumption that the elderly population maybe is less equipped to use newer technologies? I think as the Medicare population, as we keep adding 10,000 people a day to that Medicare population, they're used to using these devices. I think even probably during the pandemic, just to stay in touch with family members and other people communicating the telehealth also grew. So obviously these Medicare members can adapt to these telehealth and other technology type of events. Do they sometimes need some additional help, which I can talk about later with some of the things we've already found with some of the programs we've done, where there does need to maybe be that extra technology support, but definitely they do want to embrace it because once they realize that they can get more of this real-time feedback, they can take more control of their disease state, just like a type one diabetic that that might be a teenager enjoys that same type of control and relief or parents relief of that in that population. It could also be from that same child feeling comfortable with their parent on insulin or other types of medication in the middle of the night that they can accurately monitor them while they're possibly out of town or in a different state to make sure that their parent or family member is well taken care of with their diabetes care. Great, thank you. So I want to chime in and just say from my experience doing this for 20 years as well, we've always got to focus on patient engagement in our care management programs and medication therapy management programs because we've quickly learned that you can't tell somebody what to do. That's not very effective. Anybody who has children probably understands that. So having patient buy-in and having them part of the plan usually helps outcomes. So with that, how do you think health plans can identify and engage the underserved population who has diabetes and educate them and address some of these risks and how we can get better outcomes. Recently joined Zing a little over a year ago and, and last year in 2021, we actually ended up having four members receive a continuous glucose monitor throughout the whole entire year. So some of that was due to access and some of that was due to education. And definitely from the education aspect, that's where we enrolled our case managers. They're already talking to some of these high-risk members and definitely members that are in our CSNP programs. All of them had blood glucose monitors, but educating them around what was available to them from a continuous glucose monitor standpoint, where what are those benefits of actually getting that CGM, applying it, and then using it. But some of the bigger hurdles we had, we actually got members to agree to it, but then it was a huge struggle to actually get providers to actually prescribe a CGM to majority of our members because they felt like they didn't fall into some of the Medicare criteria, or even if they did, feeling like we wouldn't cover it or the member would not be able to afford the CGM device if they were to prescribe it. Interesting. Thank you for that. Do you mind commenting about the quality metrics? And I think we focused historically on hemoglobin A1C, and, and do you think that's the right measure? From past experience, 
I've been at a plan where we've had very high adherence ratings, if we're talking about the Medicare STAR ratings, to diabetes medications. And sometimes you just don't find that correlation between adherence to medications and then a hemoglobin A1C measure. And I view hemoglobin A1C kind of like that, the older technology of like getting that average where you could be having these very fast accelerations, either being a hyperglycemic event and then matching it with a very low hypoglycemic event to get to that reading where we wanted someone to be in that precious place between seven and eight and being well controlled. But still, those people could still be having those, especially those hypo events causing ER visits and other things where it seems as we keep moving along where other studies are coming out now about improving time and range using continuous glucose monitors, decreasing those ER visits and possibly admissions as well, that it's probably going to become a new standard as more people adopt those newer technologies and how do we gauge that and collect that data on time and range. Well, I'm glad you said that. I will just say I'm a big fan of time and range personally. Um, we've talked a lot about hypoglycemia, but it's really the excursions that lead to the micro and macular vascular complications rather than just A1C. So I think it's another lens on what's going on with our patients. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit. Do you mind introducing your company and what you're doing? Sure. At Zing Health, we're a relatively new Medicare Advantage plan. Currently, we're in Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan, mainly in the metro areas of Chicago, Indianapolis, and Detroit. Basically, we're trying to serve that underserved population from a Medicare Advantage standpoint. Typically, those communities are not selecting Medicare Advantage as people that live in the suburbs and other affluent areas pick Medicare Advantage. So we're trying to meet the needs of those members by offering unique benefits. And when I say unique benefits, so basically focused on some of the social determinants of health as well as closing some of their other gaps that we kind of already talked about around making sure they have access to recent guidelines and therapies that relate to it, as well as newer technologies that might not be typically prescribed in those underserved populations. So that's the guiding force of our plan and what we're trying to solve for our membership. Is there anything you want to mention around your strategic use of, of tech? Yes, we are trying to be, I think the strategic use of tech leads to how can you make some of these programs scalable? Meaning how do you classify people into different phases of their path so you can use different avenues to continue to communicate with them and manage their therapy. So recently we launched a program around diabetes management that includes an ambulatory care pharmacist, but basically having that ambulatory care pharmacist reach out to our diabetic members that are already on CGM or that probably require one. So our focus is on members that are on insulin and then also on sulfonylureas as the first phase of what we're trying to get enrolled into this diabetes program. So there we're collecting all the information. We're having these members agree to actually share their CGM data with us. So that way we can track their time and range and have her kind of reach out to members whenever they're having gaps, whether it's hypo or hyper events, to help them with their medications, their diet, or possibly exercise of what's causing, I think you used the word excursions, I like that, the excursions between that time and range where we're trying to basically improve that and globally improve their time and range over the length of time. So basically that's our main goal is figure out where the member is at the start of the program and what we're trying to get to the end. Right now, it's a very hands-on, labor-intensive program that we started a little over a month ago. And some of that's coming from closing those technology gaps. But our hope is that with the data we're collecting now, that we can make that scalable through technology such as text messaging, emails, and other types of things to make sure that the member can be taken care of without that direct patient contact that we're doing right now in the pilot phase. 
I love a lot of what you said. I, you know, obviously, technology is getting easier and better and less expensive. And so figuring out ways we can scale that to reach different populations is awesome. And I love the fact that you are using a kind of a multimodal approach here too with pharmacists and others. And I just want to add on to that. I think, you know, we've had a unique experience here where we also provide access to social workers. So we have social workers and pharmacists working with the CDEs and the other providers, just because there's such a large component in terms of community resources and mental health comorbidities and other things. So that's awesome. And I think that's kind of a cool approach. I 100% agree with that. And that's what we're using as well. So if a member is having an issue that they don't know where they're going to live in the next 30 days, their diabetes care is probably relatively secondary to that major, like, where do I move to at the end of this month? So we have social workers as well to assist with that. And one item that I would say that assisting with some of the technology gap, we also use what we call community health workers as well, that'll actually go into our members' home. And if they're having a problem linking their device to their smartphone or to their reader to basically get internet access so they can share that information with us or their provider or a family member, we're trying to close that gap by bringing that type of resource into their home to basically help them set up that device and make sure it's, it's linked correctly and then running as well. So it does take those kind of not just using that pharmacist resource would be an expensive resource to be using for all those attributes, but you'd need to get into those, especially when it comes to social work and finding housing or food security is very critical to the success of the underserved population and their diabetes control. Yeah, it's that support plan. It kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier a little bit with patient engagement too. I mean, it's, it's helping these patients make the decision themselves that they're going to work on this stuff. So, yes. Exactly. That's probably one of the biggest items we do try to, we employ the choice model here at Zing. So that is one of the things we're constantly tracking of like, why does the member sign up for the program? And then also sometimes why does the member not sign up for the program is, is the biggest one of what type of other barriers that we have to actually remove first for them to be more interested in getting that new technology or changing certain things in their diet or other types of things so they can have better control of their diabetes. Perfect. And you've kind of again touched on this, but do you mind kind of reiterating what Zing's programs are around using real-time continuous glucose monitors for members at no cost? Yes. So I think I hit on this earlier, back in 2021, we were covering continuous glucose monitors, I'd say probably the standard approach way, where we're only covering it through a durable medical equipment provider. It involved prior authorization that was very following the CMS guidelines around when they'd be covered. What we did in 2022 is we immediately removed the barrier where members could actually receive CGM devices at the pharmacy counter and also set up a smart edit with our PBM as well. So basically looking for those insulin claims or other types of items that could actually trigger the use of a CGM. What we started to find though, was even with that, with like our new membership joining at the beginning of the year, most of these members, they might've got their insulin on December 31st. They didn't need something, but they wanted to get the device. So the smart edit wasn't working and actually we were kind of becoming a little bit of a barrier. We're actually, we were kind of removed some of those smart edits and actually allowing it now for all diabetic members where if a provider feels like they need to have a CGM, we approve it. And we're basically do back-end audits now to make sure that those devices are being used appropriately for diabetes and just doing it that way. We didn't find any abuse of the system at this point in time. With the CGM, all of the members had diabetes. So why have a process in a way that basically just inhibits utilization? So we're doing more of those back-end audits now to make sure that these members are on 
they actually do have diabetes that receive a CGM device. So we've kind of went full spectrum where we were using smart edits and now we kind of turned them off because it was just more of another barrier even with a smart edit. I couldn't agree more. This area, the real-time CGMs are not like drugs, whereas technology gets better, prices exponentially explode. So we've been doing similar things, or at least trying to, is you know, moving these things to pharmacy, you know, removing some of the utilization management barriers. And just for our payer colleagues, it, the budgets haven't blown up and, and gone crazy. Utilization's actually been very appropriate, and I think outcomes are getting better. So I, I think it's, it's a good thing. Yes, I will say the utilization has gone up. I mean, we went from four people in 2021 to, <laughs> to this year, you know, probably about 10% of our diabetic population is now receiving a CGM device, but we're getting closer to what is, to your point, appropriate use of the devices with our membership population. So again, like if, if there's a barrier in the way to get to appropriate utilization, that's, we probably should be removing it. Excellent. So kind of the last question I'll pose to you is, What's next for you? What's next for Zing? And, and what are you guys working on in improving diabetes care? Also right now, we're doing a lot of work with education of our providers around low-income subsidy benefits. 65% of our membership qualifies for low-income subsidy benefits. So what that generally means in the Medicare population, that they're going to pay the same copay for a 30-day supply or a 90-day supply. So if it is that branded medication, please write for the 90-day supply. Also, we see a lot of resistance sometimes to writing for appropriate therapy when it involves SGLT2s and GLP1s. So right now we're starting another program where we're trying to do more education around, especially around our low-income subsidy members, where those providers are sometimes hesitant because they hate to get that phone call that the member hit the coverage gap. And now all of a sudden they cannot afford those more expensive branded medications. So we're trying to do more educational campaigns, not just with our members, but also with our provider groups around the membership that has low income subsidy and how they can possibly prescribe it. And then also with the recent passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, I'm, I'm sure most plans are still trying to analyze everything that's going on with that, with those changes coming up here. But probably the most beneficial will probably be that removal of the donut hole there in 2025. But we are trying to explore like other formulary changes and other things that we could possibly do in 2024 to possibly assist some of that, some of the membership that doesn't qualify for low-income subsidy, that they can get access to more recently approved medication, branded medication. We still can't get rid of the donut hole. We can't get rid of the catastrophic, but what can we do to assist to make sure the members on the proper therapy and find other programs if that's available to them to get that additional support. So that's kind of what's next of what we're kind of looking at now. I think there'll probably be a lot more innovation coming from CSNET plans as well with these benefit design changes. But I think that's probably what all of us are trying to figure out with the new IRA passage of what we're going to do with that. Yeah, and that's my other soapbox item aside from engagement is affordability. So we're quickly making access to things more difficult and it's just, it's going to come back to, I think, bite us and, and affect outcomes. It has to. Yeah, I think in 2025, I think we're going to see another big increase in utilization. It'll be one of those booms that I think we saw back in 2006, whenever Medicare Part D initially went. We saw more patients utilizing a benefit that they needed to utilize, but they just couldn't afford the medications. Because I know I had a Medicare plan, worked in a Medicare plan before that, and our quarterly benefits now look like our supplemental benefits that we offer now on a quarterly basis. But that used to be the prescription drug benefit. And sometimes what I'm going over with pharmacy students is reminding them back before 2006, that was kind of the way plans offered incentives for them to join was to offer these $125 benefits. And people would blow through it in one prescription. So it'll be great to see what type of innovation comes here in the next couple of years. 
Perfect. It's definitely a complex healthcare system, so it's, it's not easy. But I appreciate you being with us and sharing your thoughts around this population and, and some of the cool things you're working on. So we will now move to the Q&A section and address any questions you may have. Este, it looks like there's still some questions around the medical versus pharmacy benefit. And, you know, there's not a consensus on, you know, how that's being handled uh, in the market. So we've talked about that, but I guess the first question is uh, explicitly around retail pharmacies submitting or billing under the medical benefit. And this question is that has stated that there's, in their experience, not many retail pharmacies can bill uh, CGMs. So I, I think that's right. Some some pharmacies are do bill uh, using other services under the medical benefit, but it's a different program. But most of the pharmacies do bill under pharmacy. And as we've seen a shift from the medical benefit to the pharmacy benefit, we've seen this increase. So that again, just speaks to, you know, some of the benefits of moving to pharmacy. And, and one of those is point of sale adjudication. So the second part of that, I get the other common themes to these questions, Este, and this is to you, is um, have you seen covering CGMs under the pharmacy benefit as a differentiated for your company? And has it been good when you go out and talk to uh, clients and customers and employers and other people? Yeah, we do view it kind of as a, a differentiation in the in a Medicare space because it does allow that access, especially in our in our underserved communities. I think I kind of mentioned earlier that whenever it was being dropped off at their doorstep or other items from a DME provider, there were some concerns or, you know, would it be there by the time they got to their door or they feel like they're kind of locked to their home for that window of time of that they were provided that it could be received where providing access at the pharmacy counter, that might be the same. That's the, probably the same pharmacy where they're picking up the rest of their prescription drugs. You know, one of our other uh, benefits is providing providing rides to the pharmacy to pick that up. So again, if it gets aligned with their prescription refills, they can pick up the CGM device at the same pharmacy counter that they're also picking up their diabetes medications and other medications and still have that interaction there. And that seemed to open up much more opportunity than for the membership to get it. Also, it enabled us to provide it um, and, and reassure members that there was no cost to these items. We cover these, our preferred um, CGM devices, as well as our preferred um, blood glucose monitors at no cost to our members. So again, like at that at the counter there, that the member can see that. And I, and I think what was kind of labeled in that earlier question is, it's kind of does come down to that plan specific type of item of do they want to cover CGMs at the pharmacy? And it's it's very much like that evolution of covering diabetes test trips back a number of years ago at, at the pharmacy counter. It was always covered under DME. On the Medicare side, we figured out a way to do the back end adjudication to match up to our Part B billing to make sure everything aligns from a compliance standpoint. But knowing that that's there now, that's that's relatively easy to set up and basically becomes like a plan preference of where do they want to cover a CGM device. No, that's perfect. And, and I, you know, just to kind of wrap that up, you know, there, obviously there's a difference between a formulary and a benefit. So those two things have to work together here. And what we're really talking about is uh, a, be a benefit determination. And again, if, uh, you know, covering these things under the pharmacy benefit instead of the medical benefit, but just holistically, you know, we've been talking about this for 10 plus years. I mean, generally speaking, there, there are benefits to covering something under the pharmacy benefit where you can. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing is, uh, and you mentioned one of the things is, is, you know, consistency with the patient. So they're getting uh, their medications and their supplies and other things from the same place. There's a little bit more consistency with the pharmacist. 
and the education they're getting. But just from an operational perspective, you know, the point of sale adjudication is a big deal. So that claim is adjudicated right then rather than retrospectively, you know, when something comes in after the fact. And we have better data. So we, you know, the, and that's, that's not insignificant. So, you know, having more insight into adherence and refills and timing of refills and all of that is important, but it also makes rebating uh, potentially more effective here too. And going back to your comment around test strips, that's just it, right? So, you know, that's a perfect example where test strips, because of rebates and, and other things, ended up costing us about a third of what they cost us when we were adjudicating them under the medical benefit. Um, so the last couple of questions that have come in are, are around two kind of newer changes that have happened in the market. So I want to kind of wrap up with these two questions. The first one is, you know, CMS has uh, discussed some potential changes to coverage, uh, some, some LCD issues. Can you explain kind of what those are and potentially how they would be impactful? Yes, it, it does um, greatly change who, who becomes covered for uh, CGM, especially with just the insulin treated. So that opens up um, the basal insulin population. And then also with the history of problematic hypoglycemia, I think whenever, whenever we met, it was right before this came out. You know, that, that addresses some of those concerns around the sulfonylurea use and the, and the hypoglycemia that, that can be caused by those agents. Again, this is kind of, I see another question popped out about Part B and not, and not D. So a CGM is, is technically covered under Part B as in boy and not under Part D as in dog. But you can still adjudicate that on a point of sale system um, and apply the benefits on the back end and appropriately apply them to a member's out of pocket through accumulators and other items. But again, coverage this way makes it much simpler if it is, like if you do want to set up smart edits around basal insulin use only, or actually even just a sulfonylurea based on this, on some of these proposed changes, you can easily run that through a smart edit through the PBM system, instead of the more laborious process of filling out a form, sending it in, have it go to the DME provider. And, and that delay of, you know, in some studies, I think I've seen like 10 plus days of using that type of paper process versus having that engaged member at the pharmacy counter that once something then, and maybe only a day difference because the pharmacy might have to order it, you can get that engaged member onto that device much more quickly and then also have a much better outcome because they are engaged. Awesome. So we are about out of time. So I want to la ask you maybe one last two-prong question and kind of lump some of these questions together under what I would consider maybe the social determinants of health umbrella. So the first part of that is, you know, can you comment on your approach to reaching members who are not tech savvy? And then the second Part of the question or the second question would be, you know, there's been some new data coming out showing a correlation between race and ethnicity on adherence. And so can you comment on that? Yeah. So first on the, on the non-tech savvy members, that's where I would highlight the use of our community health workers that we have to go out into the member's home that can help walk them through it. Because really, they, you need to have eyes on what they are doing. Trying to do some of that through a phone, they're trying to manipulate to download an app at the same time. You could even possibly be trying to FaceTime them or do something else. That's, that's very difficult to help them walk through. But if they are having those technology type of gaps, you do need more of that in-home type of care, or they need to be referred back to their to their provider that might also offer some of those type of programs. We've tried to go the route, um, especially just because we have we have them available of, of using those community health workers to go into the home. But on your second one, there, there was that, that recent study that came out and it did continue to show that persons of color were less likely to use 
a CGM despite Medicare coverage. And, and what they saw was actually almost like half the use of, of the white population in the use of that. So there still is this access or treatment issue that is continuing to go on. And again, what we've seen that helped alleviate it from our plan side was actually providing that coverage through that pharmacy benefit at that point of sale that was actually able to engage more of our members to help get that percentage up to hopefully where it should be in the appropriate population receiving the devices. Perfect. So it definitely needs to be a consideration in the programs that we're building. So unfortunately, we now have to wrap up. Um, Este, I would like to thank you for your insightful commentary and uh, just all of the very cool things you're doing. Thank you very much for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day.